Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. At the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know if it's me or the song, but everyone just feels like they need to sort of calm down, you know, when the preacher comes up. But I'm happy to be here this morning. My name is Emmanuel. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're happy to have you. We have been going through a series in First Thessalonians, like Pastor Femi said, and today we'll sort of wrap it up, take a little break, and then, you know, have the um, mini-series next week before coming back to First Thessalonians. But before we go ahead this morning, I do want us to pray. Um, I want us to just bow our heads and just cast our minds on the Lord again. Um, every time we come before the presence of the Lord, it's an opportunity to just lay our burdens at his feet. And so I don't know what your burdens are this morning. I don't know what's ailing you. I don't know what's troubling you. But I want you to fix your gaze on the Lord Jesus. I want you to fix your gaze on the Lord Jesus. Maybe some of us are worried and hurried and harried by many things that are occurring in our lives. In Luke chapter 10, we're told of Martha and Mary. Mary sat down quietly at his feet. But Martha wasn't able to partake of all that the Lord was dishing out because she was worried about many things. That's what Jesus said. You are worried about too many things. Just say to the Lord this morning, Lord, I I drop all my worries at your feet. And Lord, I want to take on your own yoke that is light and is easy and that you strengthen me to bear. I want you to have an expectation this morning. I just ask the Lord to come through. His word comes forth. That his word will come in power. 
his word would affect you where you need it most. That you'll be changed and transformed by it. Scripture says the expectation of the righteous will not be cut short. I want you to have an expectation this one. Just say, Lord, meet me here. Give me a word, Lord, that solves my current crisis. Gives me, give me a word that intervenes, Lord, into the confusion that I'm experiencing. In the same way that your word came and spoke light into darkness, Lord, speak your light into my darkness. In the same way, Lord, that your word came, Lord, and he healed diseases, Lord. Heal me, Lord, in the places where, Lord, I'm broken and cracked, Lord, I need mending. In the same way, Lord, where your word comes, Lord, and intervenes where there is no direction, come, Lord, and give me direction. This is all of our prayer this morning. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. So if you were here last week, um, we sort of started looking at when life happens. And we said that life will happen to everyone, right? If, you ha- if life hasn't happened to you, if you haven't gone through any sort of suffering or disruption, just wait. Hold on. It will happen, right? And so there are really only two people. Those who are going through challenges or suffering or who are experiencing life happening to them. And those who are waiting for that to happen to them. And so we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 to 3 verse 5, that the only way we can survive when life happens to us is by knowing that we have an enemy. It's by knowing that we have a destiny, that God has so brightly orchestrated things for us that the way he, in which he fits us for the destination he's taking us to is by bringing challenges and suffering and the disruption of life on our path. But we also saw that we have an exemplary example in the person of Jesus Christ, who is not just a distant example for us, but also one who is empowered to go through, uh, when we go through life and when we go through suffering. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't um, listened to that sermon, I would encourage you to listen to it, because in many ways it's the first of the two-part series that we're looking up, two-part sermon um, that we've been looking at, and today will be the second of that. So last week we saw how to survive when life happens, and this week we'll look at how to thrive when life happens. And as I was thinking about that, in many ways, there are people, the people who know how to thrive when life has happened to them sit in this room, Nigerians, right? We are living testimonies of thriving when life happens. Some of you have had, you know, this whole, this past week, really the last two weeks, we've had power issues, you know, and, and you've not died, right? You've not looted stores. I'm always amazed every time they say there's power failure, you know, in foreign countries, and you see people running out in the night. They are going to break store windows to steal and stuff, man. Like, come to Lagos, come to Nigeria. This doesn't happen here, right? And so it made me start thinking about famous Nigerians. Famous Nigerians. Pastor Femi is our grand quiz master. I'm not going to quiz you guys, okay? Um, But I do think, let's just have a little exercise to think about some of the famous Nigerians. So we'll have pictures come up. And then you guys will sort of say who it is, right? Okay, so this first person. First of all, who knows what this is? What is this? Who, are, who has seen this before? <laughs> all right, okay. This is one narrow note, right? If you, if you don't know what it is, 
it is an um, extinct species of currency that was spent in Nigeria at one point, but now belongs to the Neolithic age, the ice age of currencies. But this is one naira. Um, and who is this guy on the one naira? Right, right, right. You guys listened in social studies class and government class. Herbert Macaulay, he's the father, he's described as the father of Nigerian nationalism. Um, was the first, the person who founded the first political party, NNDP, in the 1920s, right? And then eventually became the NCNC. Namdi Azikwe came from that. And then, you know, great guy, great guy. Okay, good job, good job. Next one. Shehu Shagari, Shehu Shagari. Who was Shehu Shagari? He's late now. Who was he? President of Nigeria, but really the, 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 yes, President of the Second Republic, but really the first executive president of Nigeria, right? The president we had before that wasn't voted into office, but he was the first person that was voted into office, and he ruled, he was in government for about five-ish years, four and a half years before somebody took over from him. We won't say who it was. But if you know, you know. Who is this other person? This other person. There was one picture before that. But, but, but. Yes. Okay. Chimamanda. Chimamanda. Who is Chimamanda? Or who was she? Who is she? Is she? So you know she's alive. Great, great. You guys, you guys read the news. Chimamanda is an, is an amazing Nigerian writer. Probably the most popular Nigerian writer currently living. Um, young Nigerian writer. She's written tons of books. Okay, not tons, not tons. Faith has corrected me, not tons of books. But I was going to say tons of books, articles, essays, right? I was going somewhere. Okay, so she's, she's, quite, a, she's quite an accomplished writer um, in her right. And lastly, you've already seen the picture. But when you think about famous Nigerian citizens, this man or this woman belongs to that list. Many of us don't think about it, but if you think about what it means to thrive when life is happening, <laughs> Indomie noodles. Indomie noodles came into the Nigerian market. They actually, so Indomie was a, or is an Indonesian company that came into the Nigerian market in the 1980s. Before Indomie came, noodles was seen as an exclusively Asian product, right? It was a Chinese thing. But somehow, this guy has so, not just survived the market, but has thrived in this market that Indomie is now a Nigerian citizen, but is found in Nigerian homes. More than 70% of Indomie sales worldwide is from this country. How did they accomplish it? Some of you may remember Indomie, didn't, they didn't have their own factory, local factory, until 1995 or so. I remember the first time that I saw the Indomie advert. I was about five or six. I was like, what is this? And it was a catchphrase. We were talking about adverts last week. Two-minute noodles, two-minute noodles, right? And it came on when, some of you remember, there was a show called Kiddy Vision 101. And it was when that show was prime or when it was showing that they were sort of filling the blanks or filling the gaps with this product. And so they targeted children. And by targeting children, children were going to tell their parents, Mommy, there's this new food, there's this new thing that has come out. All my, all my friends are eating it in class. I want it too. And then parents will buy. 
And then parents will prepare because it was easy. Two minutes, you didn't have to start sweating about, oh, what would these children take to school today? What would they eat and all that? Two minutes, you could sort of get a meal ready that would help them for, for lunch and for, you know, after school before they come back home. So it was easy. But it wasn't just that. It was affordable. When Indomie came into Nigeria, 78% of the, of the country was living, um, I can't quite remember what it was, but there was really, really stark economic, um, the, the climate was really stuck economically. And Indomie did it in such a way that the product was affordable. You didn't have to go to a market, you didn't have to go to a restaurant, a high-end restaurant, to be able to buy their products. You could just walk into any shop, pay 20 naira or 30 naira, whatever it was, and you could have this. Thriving when life is hard. And in many ways, friends, that is what we see presented to us in the story of the Thessalonians. That not just to have survived when hardship comes, not just for us to walk through hardship, banded, and, and having bandages on our body, and sort of, oh, I just barely made it. But actually that in the midst of hardship, God can cause you to thrive and to excel. So in the NLT, it says, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, it says, So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters. And it says in verse 8, It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul says, because of what they have gone through and how God has preserved their faith, there was a new lease of life, basically, that was given to them. They thrived. Paul was thriving because of the report that he got from the Thessalonians. And I pray for somebody here that regardless of what you're experiencing, I pray that God's power will be at work in your life to cause you to thrive in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul shows us three things. I'll briefly look at three things that Paul highlights in this passage today to help us see how we can thrive or make the best use of the circumstances that face us when life happens. Let's just pray again and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we do ask, O oh God, Lord, that you help us to remain focused on you this morning. We sang like your word alone is solid ground. Lord, we've not come to hear anyone or gaze on anyone, Lord, or see any church or hear anything apart from you, Lord Jesus. So now please come, Lord, and breathe life upon us. In Jesus' name. The first thing we see here is to resolve to be thankful. Can we say that together? Resolve to be thankful. So last week we saw that Paul, because of his you know, worry about what had happened, he sends Timothy on an errand basically to find out how the Thessalonians are doing. And in verse 6 we are told when Timothy comes back, Timothy comes back with good news. I don't know if anybody here has ever received good news, right? Like you were working, you were going through traffic, and then you just got, however it is, you know, Canada, immigration, and all of those people communicate to people. You just got, your application is successful. Come and pick up your PR, your passport. The joy that comes when that happens. Or you're, you, you know, you've been apprehensive about your, your wife who is sort of in the delivery room, and you don't know how this thing will turn out. And then you hear... It's a boy, it's a girl. 
The baby is alive. The mother is fine. The joy that comes through. That is what Paul is having here. We know that because the word Paul uses to describe good news is the word that the Bible uses in the New Testament to describe the preaching of the gospel. Paul is saying, I'm so excited about what has happened to you guys that this is like the gospel. This is amazing news. This is great news. And why is Paul so excited? In verse 6, we are told that he sees, he has heard rather, Timothy comes back with this news, that their faith is strong, God has preserved them, but their love also is increasing. If and when he talks about the love there in verse 6, he says that we long to see you just like you long to see us. It's the stuff of lovers that is happening here. I don't know if anyone has been in a long-distance relationship, or you know friends who are in a long-distance relationship. I had one come to our house yesterday. Any small thing, they're always on phone. They're always calling each other, texting each other. They're always excited. Why? Because there is love there. They long to see each other. And Paul is saying, we're so excited about what has happened to you guys that we are longing to see you just like you are longing to see us as well. But it's strange, if you keep reading the passage, it's strange because in verse 7 and 9, we see that the circumstance hasn't changed. Paul says he's still in the middle of the suffering. He's still in the middle of all that is going on. He's still in the middle of the disruption. Last week we saw that Satan was the one that blocked their path. And somehow it's still like the devil's plans are still in place. The devil is not moved. The blockage is still there and Paul is excited. Can I suggest to someone here that we have here this passage telling us, resolve to be thankful even when life seems woeful. Resolve to be thankful, even when life seems woeful. Sometimes, friends, our circumstances are only as powerful as our perception of them. How is it that two people can look at the same thing and come away with different conclusions? How is it that somebody can see that the sky, the clouds are dark and the person says, night is about to fall. And somebody else looks at it and says, men is about to rain. Why? Their perception of the facts is different. Paul is saying, I am resolving to be thankful even when life seems woeful. And friends, this is different from positive thinking. Positive thinking is saying, oh, these bad things are happening. I'm sort of just going to ignore it and then just start speaking positive words and hopefully somehow by the time I'm speaking these positive words, the circumstance changes. No, what Paul is saying here instead is that I'm going to look at these circumstances with the lens of God's word and God's truth. Resolve to be thankful even when life seems woeful. Can you turn to your neighbor and say that? Resolve to be thankful even when life seems woeful. Friends, in Christ, we have the greatest situation definer in Jesus Christ. That you can literally be going through bad things and yet your circumstance hasn't changed. And somehow your perception of that circumstance changes because you are defined not by what you are going through, but you are defined by who you belong to. And this is what Paul is showing us here. There's a phrase that keeps occurring in the Bible again and again particularly the King James. Sometimes you read stuff and it says, and it came to pass. Can I suggest to you that a good theology to have in your mind is that situations come to pass. 
that no matter how dark the night exists, no matter how things seem bleak and hopeless and dark and you've been praying and longing and trusting God for things, somehow the night always passes and the day comes. And I pray again that no matter how many of us are experiencing darkness, that the light of God will break through in Jesus' name. In verse 7, Paul says that the news that he received was so encouraging. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the word encouragement. Some of us think about, oh, just saying things to people so that they can sort of just, you know, feel better and, you know, just ignore their circumstance. Or maybe you look at somebody who is not great and you sort of just say things so that they feel better about themselves than they actually are. That's flattery. But the difference between flattery and encouragement is that encouragement always looks at where grace is working and identifies the grace of God amidst situations. In Acts chapter 11, verse 23 to 24, the church in the New Testament then had been experiencing a lot of difficulties and challenges. Things weren't going well. Basically, believers were, believers were scattered across the places where they found themselves, and, and it seemed like, man, things aren't working well. But God was at work. And so people were getting converted. People were getting saved. And we're told in verse 24 that the church in, in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to go to Antioch. And he says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and encouraged them in all that the Lord was doing. He identified all the things that God was doing. And he said, wow, you guys, you're on the right track. Encouragement always identifies where the grace of God is at work. I see, friends, the thing about grace is that grace is pregnant. Grace begets more grace. The more you acknowledge the grace of God in your life, the more you acknowledge the grace of God in your situations and circumstances, the more of the grace of God that will be produced as you go forth. Paul was encouraged. Says, yes, things haven't changed. Circumstances are sort of still the same, but I am encouraged by the good news that I've heard from you. The grace of God is at work in you guys' life, and I'm confident of what God can yet do. He was encouraged. Well, you see, Paul wasn't just encouraged, Paul's encouragement overflowed into thankfulness. And I feel that sometimes some of us who even are excelling in the grace of encouragement, we need to step ahead and be thankful for the things that God has done because thankfulness is fueled by meditation. It is you acknowledging your limitations and acknowledging God's limitlessness. Paul knows that it wasn't because I'm a great guy or I prayed. I wasn't even able to come and see you guys. I wasn't even able to come and to leave the place where I am. And somehow God is at work. And so he says in verse 9 that this has caused us to be thankful to God for you. Thankfulness is filled by meditation. We acknowledge our limitations and we celebrate God's limitlessness. And it's interesting, friends, that one of the signs that the Bible presents of the end times in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that in the last days that people will become unthankful. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say people will start sleeping around? 
It doesn't say people will sort of, you know, start killing each other and there will be world wars. All of that are there, or is there, but the Bible says also that in the last times, one of the signs that we are walking far away from God is that we become unthankful people. Thankfulness shows that we acknowledge our limitations and we celebrate God's limitlessness. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a story told of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is having everything go well for him. And everything is just grand and it's on a large scale. And the guy is excelling. And one day he steps out and he looks and he sees, Men, look at all the things that my hands have built. Look at all the things that I have created. Look at all the things that my wisdom has purchased. And God looks at him in Daniel 4, 29 to 33. And he says, this guy, you are going to become a beast and you're going to run around, and you're going to eat grass for food, and your hair will grow, and your nails will grow long, so that what you actually are can be evident. Thankfulness. When we are ungrateful to God, ungrateful for the things that God has done in our lives, we show who we really are. We show that we are beastly. And when God looked at Nebuchadnezzar and judged him, God was basically saying, this is who you are. You will become what you actually are because you think that it is in your own power and might that you have done all these things, Abby. Oh yeah, let's see now. Let's see what he actually purchases for you. Unthankfulness shows that we are beastly. No wonder I like the Yoruba proverb so much. Permit me to say it in Yoruba. I'll translate it into English. It says that Eniba monuro Anybody with the gift of interpretation of tongues here today? <laughs> Basically, what it means is that if you are able to think deeply, you'll be able to be grateful deeply. In other words, our ingratitude is a result of our unthinking. Oh, things aren't working well for me. Oh, things are so bad. I haven't done this. I haven't accomplished that. Look at my age. Look at all my friends. Look at all the people around me and all the things they have purchased. Oh, yes. Well, maybe that is true, but somehow you are still alive. Somehow you haven't died. Somehow all these circumstances that you are talking about, God has kept you and preserved your sanity in the middle of it. And what you think that God owes you an explanation We don't give thanks because we don't think deeply. But we see Paul give thanks in two ways in this passage. In verse 6, Paul is thankful for past mercies. Paul is thankful for past mercies. We're told that Timothy comes with the good news of all the things that God had done. And somehow Paul was like, oh God, thank you for this. Thank you that when all these guys were going through these things, you preserved them. Thankful for past mercies. Can I suggest to you, friends, that sometimes if you look over, over the course of your life, some of you know what I'm talking about, where you were born, there is no plotting, there is no orchestrating that could say this is where you'll be today. And somehow, God in his kindness has brought you where you are today. Past mercies. Some of you know, I, some, I've shown the picture to some of you of when I had an accident and I was told that the car somersaulted several times. And somehow people were, I, I went down a ditch and people come from the express, Lagos Ibadan express, like, there's no way somebody's going to come out of this thing. And I came out, past mercies. 
And some of you have those testimonies where God has done great deliverances for you. Some of you was even your own foolishness and stupidity that actually got you into that thing. Right? Many of you know when you, were, you weren't supposed to be driving. When you were driving, you were drunk, you were wasted, you were tired, you were exhausted, and you still made up your mind that you're going to drive. And somehow, God caused you to arrive home safely. You think you're a good driver, that's why you saved, you're saved. Some of you know the things you've been involved in, right? All the illicit relationships you had, and somehow God in his kindness has caused you not to have an STD. You think that is because you are wise? Past mercies. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is facing, the children of Israel are facing Goliath. And, you know, everybody has just been discouraged and disturbed by all the things that Goliath has been saying. This Goliath is this great guy. It is basically like the U.S. focusing all their armor tanks at your border upon your little village. No, seriously, think about it. What hope of survival do you have? And this small guy, this little David, walks up to the king and says, No, I can take down this guy. And the king says, no, no, put on this, put on this armor, put on this thing, do this, do that. And the guy says, God was there for me when I faced the, the, the bear. God was there for me when this thing attacked me, when the lion attacked me. This same God will be available for me now when I'm facing this uncircumcised Philistine. Thankful for past messages. You see, when we meditate on God's kindness to us in the past, it births miracles for the future. Thankful for past mercies. But Paul is also thankful for present mercies. And I think this is the harder one, right? Because sometimes they say hindsight is twenty twenty, And so you grow older and you sort of look and it's like, yeah, God was actually with me for that one. Yeah, I should be grateful. But this one, nah, I don't know. God is not here. But somehow, even though the circumstances haven't changed, even though everything remains the same on the outside, on the external, Paul still finds a way to be thankful. In verse 9, he says, even now, at this very moment, we are in the presence of God, rejoicing, thankful for what God has done for you. Thankful for present circumstances. In other words, if you think well enough, If you think well enough, there are things in your life right now that you have reasons to thank God for. And one of the things Paul shows us is that we should celebrate little mercies, little victories, little accomplishments. You know how you meet people and you say, "Ah, why don't you come and say this thing that God has done for you? You say, no, I want the testimony to be complete. (laughs) You know all those Christian stuff, eh? I want the testimony to be complete. God is still... Paul doesn't wait for his testimony to be complete. You're like, Paul, how do you know tomorrow something bad will happen? He said, eh, I don't know. But right now, God has been great. God has been kind anyway. And I will celebrate his kindness here and now. Celebrate little mercies. Yes, I, didn't, I don't know if I'll make it all the way for the, for the final stage of the interview. But I didn't expect to come so far. Celebrate where God has taken you even now. Celebrate little mercies. But it also means, friends, that we have to be people who are giving testimonies. 
Psalm 107, verse 2, it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But it doesn't end there. It says, Whom the Lord has delivered from trouble. In other words, there are things God is always doing in our lives that we have to celebrate and thank him for publicly with other people. As some of you are here, you're thinking, eh, it's because you guys don't allow us to give testimonies, that's why. <laughs> but actually, there's nothing that says, no, your testimony is more valid when 500 people listen to it. And it's less valid if two people or three people or 20 people, 20 something people in your GC listen to it. There's nothing like that in the Bible, right? So the validity of your testimony is not based on where it's given or the number of people who hear it. Rather, it is based on your heart of appreciation and thanksgiving to God. Be a testimony giver. In secondary school, we had a guy in our school fellowship. This guy was a great guy, but he sort of had this annoying habit of always giving testimony. Sometimes God did amazing stuff, but other times he would just come and say, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I want to thank God for just waking me up and keeping me alive to today. And my dad and mom are fine. And all of us are fine. Praise the Lord. I was like, guy, give some, give real testimony. (laughs) As in, celebrate real stuff. But what was he doing? It was a heart cultivating thanksgiving. It was a heart of, God, you have been faithful. God, you have been good. Why, 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 friends? Why do you think if you set a nine o'clock appointment tomorrow, you should be there? Why? In Luke chapter 12, we are told that God actually is the one who holds our breath in his hands. And he can cut off the supply of oxygen to your lungs. And somehow, we think we have a right when we set an appointment to be there when we've agreed with the person because I'm a person of integrity. Give testimonies. God is always doing a million little miracles, like that song says, in our lives that we can't see. Give testimonies. Well, can I just say one other thing it means, friends, is that we should be people who keep records or keep journals. We need to be people who are constantly documenting what God is doing in our lives. Here's why. Sometimes we can't see clearly what God is doing in our lives. And so by recording what we are perceiving that he's doing in our lives in the, in the present moment, when we come back to it after a number of days or years, clarity has come. The situation is complete. And you see, wow, God was doing this in my life. It makes your heart well up in thanksgiving to him. It builds faith for the future. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've recorded stuff. Just go and pick your old journals and read what you were writing when you were in university. It amazes me every time I do this. You know, I just go and pick an old journal when I was in university. Sadly, I don't... This is very much for myself, right? To start keeping journals again. But in uni, I used to keep journals a lot. And I'll just go back sometimes three, four, five years after the fact. And I read. I'm like, Wow. This was happening in my life when I felt like I didn't have direction. When I felt like nothing was happening, God was doing this in my life. He was causing me to see these things, to write these things. Wow, God, you have been faithful. Thank you. The Bible tells us that one generation proclaims God's mercies to the next. One of the ways in which we can do that is to record what God is doing in our lives right now. 
and, and, and we write that down and we come back to it a couple of times later and we see God you have been kind you have been gracious I thank you but one other way we see in the Bible is that we have to be people who sing sing songs Virtually every deliverance that God that happens that, we are rec- that is recorded for us in the Bible, you see a song either before or after it. In Exodus, as the children of Israel are delivered from the Red Sea and from favor, um, from, from favor, whoever favor is in your life, we are, def- we, are, we, are, we are delivered from you in Jesus' name. From Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, favor, whatever, it doesn't matter idea is need. The children of Israel were delivered from Pharaoh. <laughs> I won't say favor again. I don't know what it is. And what did they do? They don't just leave and then say, wow, that was great. You know how some of us, we, we are so unimpressed by anything. Right? Like, wow, that, wow, wow, see water. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> you know those people, like, you tell them something like, wow. Wow, that's all, that's all you get from them. Wow. They don't go about wowing. They, they kneel down and they say, I will exalt you, God. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has he thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider has he thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Don't worry, the horse and its rider has he thrown into the sea. Be a singing person. You think your bad voice deters God? Seriously. Who gave you the voice in the first place? In other words, it means that for him, your voice, the quality of your voice is not what matters. It's the quality of your heart. Even if you don't know how to sing, why do we have gospel music? You can just put songs up and say, God, I I thank you for your kindness. I, I thank you for your goodness. Do you know what songs are? Songs are not just words put into melodies. Songs are anthems proclaiming the greatness of God. Why is it that every time football teams are about to, international football teams are about to go to matches, why do, why do you think they sing? You think it's just nice. It adds color to the ceremony. Yes, it does that. But even much more, it says this is who we are. This is where we have come from. This is what has been accomplished in the past. And on account of that, this is what can happen even now. Our songs are anthems proclaiming God's greatness. And we say, God, you are good. God, you are kind. I rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in your kindness. And on account of that, I will give you thanks. Thankful for present mercies. I know what's so, what's so amazing, friends, sometimes is that thanksgiving is all the spiritual weapon that you need. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, the children of Israel have been facing an army that is about to, it looks like this thing is going to destroy us. This thing is going to finish us. 
And they call upon the Lord. And God tells them to do something strange. God says, let the Levites lead. <laughs> let them just sing. And they begin to sing. And in verses 21 to 23, we are told that as the people of God are singing and declaring God's praise and thanking God for who he is, what happens? It says that the enemies helped to destroy one another. It's like, ah, guy, you are trying to kill yourself. You can't, you're, you're not succeeding. Bring your sword. Let me help you. And as that one is dying, he said, oh, and he kills the other guy. They helped to destroy one another. Can I suggest to you that perhaps, perhaps, just maybe part of the reasons why you're not seeing God's presence in your hardship is that you're not thanking him enough. Resolve to be thankful. But the next thing we see is that Paul asks us, pleads with us, to resolve to be prayerful. Can we say that together? Resolve to be prayerful. And so Paul, Paul's thanksgiving doesn't make him think, oh, everything has magically sort of just disappeared. The situation has sort of just magically ended. Actually, in verse 10, Paul says, on account of this, we go before God and this is what we are praying. In verse 10, Paul says that we earnestly, night and day, pray that God may supply what is lacking in your faith. So we see two things here. In verses 10 to 13, we see how Paul prays. How does Paul pray? Paul prays frequently. Paul prays fervently. And Paul prays fraternally. Paul prays frequently. Paul prays fervently. And Paul prays fraternally. Paul prays frequently. He says night and day. It doesn't mean, when he says night and day, it doesn't mean, oh, 6 a.m., 6 p.m. But rather, Paul is saying that I have it scheduled so that throughout, as I'm going along, I am praying regularly and asking God to intervene in this situation. If we don't think that one cup of water is enough for us in the morning, or maybe even one liter, is enough for us in the morning and throughout the day. Why do we think that just your 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is, is enough for the entire day? Paul prays frequently. Night and day, we are asking God about this thing. He's persisting. He's traveling, if you like, in the presence of God and say, God, come, intervene in this situation. Turn this thing around. He's praying frequently. What would it look like if we, if we were people who were praying frequently? What would it look like if we weren't just dedicating, you know, a season of fasting and prayer or just a couple of minutes for the challenges that we are facing or the situations we are experiencing, but rather we are the kind of people who are saying, God, we are consistently pleading and asking God, intervene in this situation, intervene in this matter, intervene, Lord, now. Night and day he prays. But Paul also prays fervently. Fervently. He says, we pray most earnestly. In other words, this is not just, oh, I'm, you know, just, oh, I'm just, I, I, I'm living a praying life. You know, that just means, oh, I'm, my thought is just on God anytime. And I just sort of casually walk through. No, no. Paul says we are praying most earnestly. In other words, he's focused all his energy and attention on this thing he's asking God. 
friends, part of the reasons why we are not thriving when life is happening and things are occurring amidst us is because we are not praying fervently. James 5, 17 to 18 says that Elijah was a man just like us. And because of his prayers, the heavens were shut. For three years, there, were no rain. there was no rain. And if you're in the Elijah series last year, you remember Pastor Femi said, oh, it wasn't just that Elijah came and just declared the words of God. God had said, this is what will happen when you guys turn away from me. I will shut the heavens, he says in Deuteronomy. So you can say, oh, well, yes, it was the will of God anyway. And so Elijah just sort of prayed it. But don't you see what James is telling us here? That there is a synergy between the will of God and the instrument that God uses to accomplish his will. And so Elijah doesn't feel, oh, yes, God has said it anyway. I'll just sort of casually just, you know, just say. No, no, Elijah says, no, we are going to pray about this thing fervently. I'm going to ask God, God, do what you have said. You have said this thing. These people are turning away from you, God. Come in your judgment and do this thing. And Elijah prays fervently and the heavens are closed. What would happen if we prayed fervently about the situations and circumstances we are having? That your marriage isn't working out well and things aren't, aren't going the way you want and you've sort of complained, complained, complained. You've gone for counseling, counseling, counseling. You've seen everybody, you've seen therapists, you've done everything, you've done exercises and everything isn't working out well. What would happen? What would God do if you said, God, I'm going to pray about this thing. Turn this situation around. What could God do if we said we're going to be the kind of church where we've been asking God to save, to come, to bring his power in our midst? What would happen if we prayed fervently and said, God, do this? Elijah prayed frequently, but he prayed fervently. But we see the last thing. He says we should pray fraternally. What does this mean? He talks about praying with like-minded people, praying in community, praying together. What does Paul say in verse 10? He says, night and day, we earnestly. Why does Paul have to put that there? Why can't he just say, I pray earnestly? It is that the same way in which you achieve better results sometimes, sweeping with a bunch of broomsticks rather than one is the same way you achieve better results sometimes by praying with God's people together. Don't let all your meetings with your friends just be like gisting parties. Sometimes that thing that you guys have been talking about that, that seems intractable, pray about it. When we gather together like this on Sunday and we are praying and somebody here is saying something, that's not an individual prayer, it's a corporate prayer. We are amening together and we are saying, God, what this person is doing, God, bring it to pass. Why do we do that? It is because God has joined us together. God has made us a community and God has said, one of the ways in which you see my power at work is in the corporate gathering, the corporate anointing of God's people together. So how do we pray? We pray frequently, fervently, but also fraternally. So that's how we pray. So what then do we pray? Because you know that you can be praying frequently, right? You can be praying fervently. 
You can even be praying with brothers and sisters fraternally, and yet nothing is happening. Why? James tells us that sometimes we don't have the answer to our prayers because we are not asking what is on God's heart. But Paul shows here, what does he pray? What should we be praying? We should pray for opportunities for growth. In verse 10, he says, we, we've been praying night and day, asking God that you guys, that will be able to come to you to supply what is lacking in your faith. And if you've been tracking with the story of the Thessalonians, you know that this is bizarre, to say the least. Because these guys are an exemplary church. He doesn't have any complaints. He doesn't say you guys are doing anything bad. And yet, he's saying something is lacking in your faith. In other words, no matter how much you think you are experiencing of God right now, no matter how much you think you are growing in your work with God right now, there is still more. And so Paul is praying, he's, he's not just praying a generic prayer, Paul is asking that even right now, you guys would experience more. Pray for opportunities for growth. He says, I want to come to you so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. In, no matter how much your faith is exemplary, no matter how many people look up to you, there is still more that God can do in your life. A true Christian is always an Oliver Twist. You know that story in Oliver Twist? No, we don't know the story. There's a scene, there's a, there's a, there's a part of Oliver, the Oliver Twist story where he's a boy in a workhouse and they always give them inadequate food. And so everybody has sort of learned to sort of cope with it. You know, like, this is what we have every day. We don't have enough food, right? But Oliver gets up one day and has the effrontery to ask and say, please, sir, I want more. Every true Christian is an Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want more. Oh God, you have been gracious in my life. Oh God, thank you for your power that is at work when I serve, when I pray, when I interact with people. Please, sir, I want more. No matter how many victories you have experienced, there is always something yet that God can still do. And you come before God and say, thank you, oh God, for all of that. Please, sir, I want more. Every true Christian is an Oliver Twist, always longing for more of God, more growth, more opportunities to be gracious, more opportunities to reach out to God's people, more opportunities to be God's instrument and vessel. Please, sir, I want more. What could God do if we're not just praying fervently, frequently, fraternally, but we're asking God, please, sir, I want more. Give us opportunities for growth. But Paul also prays opportunities for service. Opportunities for service. In verses 11 to 12, Paul comes and he says, we've, we've been asking for God to supply what is lacking in our faith. And then he begins in verse 11 and says, now may God clear our way to come to you. What? He's asking for opportunities for service. May God clear our way to come to you. He's He's acknowledged that the devil was at work. He's acknowledged that the devil's plans didn't succeed. And he's still asking God, that thing, yes, I know, the devil is on our way. You preserve their faith. But I'm still asking about this thing. God, clear our way to come to these people. You see, sometimes the more theological of us, we believe, in the, we believe more in the sovereignty of God 
rather than in a sovereign God. We believe more in the sovereignty of God rather than in a sovereign God. What do I mean? Some of us believe in the concept of what God can do rather than what God, what God can actually do. And so you say, oh, yes, God is a gracious God. God is powerful. God can do anything he wants. So I sort of, I, I leave it in his hands. If, if I've asked him for this thing and he hasn't done it, well, he knows better. Where did you learn that theology from? From Paul. And yet, that same guy is the one who is saying, yes, God, you are sovereign. You have control over all things. But precisely because you have control over all things, clear our way to help us come to them. He's asking for opportunities for service. He's not just saying, oh, God, you know what's best. But this is within your plans. And he's there petitioning God and he's asking frequently, fervently, fraternally. He's asking, God, come. Even in this situation, clear our way to be able to come to these people. What does that mean sometimes in practice? It means that you don't always have to every time, God, if it is your will, do this. You think God doesn't know if it is his will that he will do it. Why do you think that you have to remind him that it is his will before he does it? Every time, children are just amazing at this, right? His mom has told him, you can't have this thing. You can't. He'll come and meet me. Daddy, can I have this thing? Or maybe I'm even the one that has told him, you cannot have this, you can't go. He's going to wear you down with the request. And then our boy has even dis- discovered something. He has started negotiating. <laughs> when your children start negotiating, that's just another level. Sometimes it's not even the request that makes you give in. It is the wisdom, the creativity in the negotiation. <laughs> and so he says, no, you can't watch TV. He says, um, just for 10 minutes. Just, just 10 minutes. And after that, I won't watch again, okay? He actually says that, okay? <laughs> God is a gracious God. You don't have to remind him, oh God, if it is your will, please heal this person. If it is your will, please let me do this. If it is your will, do that. He knows it is his will. Your portion as his child is to come boldly before his throne of grace and say, God, do this thing. And if in his wisdom and omniscience he closes that door, you still go on petitioning and asking him anyway because his will for you is what is best in your life. And so you keep coming before his throne of grace. Paul petitions for opportunities for service. But I think also we see here, Paul says in that same verse 11 to 12, he says, we are asking God to increase and overflow, for you to increase and overflow in love for each other and for everyone else. He puts two things together that Christians often separate, community and mission. He says, we want you to increase and overflow in love for each other, community, kumbaya. Christians, oh, we just, just want to roll with the Christian crew. We just want to be together. We just want to serve. But he says also increase in love for others, non-Christians. And so some of us are so concerned about what is in the world, what is in the world that we don't want to have anything to do, so we retreat into community. 
But others of us are so concerned about the people in the world who don't know Christ, non-believers who talk against Christ, and so we are sort of the missional folks, and so we sometimes divide this thing, community and mission. But Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't have to separate them. God can make you the kind of person where you are both on mission for him, but then you are also in community with his people. Paul says, increase and overflow in love for God's people, for one another, but also for others. Can I challenge you here? Look at your prayer list. Who are those you usually pray for? Are you the kind of person who is more tilted towards asking God for opportunities for evangelism and asking God to save your unsaved family members? And then you don't sort of pray about his people. Are you the kind of person where you just pray for your friends and God's people and you don't think about those who be people who are going to an eternity without Christ? Paul says, I want you to increase them, God, and overflow them in love for each other, but also for others. May God make us a people who increase and overflow in love for each other, but also for others. In Jesus' name. But Paul also prays for opportunities for faithfulness. Opportunities for faithfulness. In verse 13, he says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Holiness is a word that has fallen on hard times. It has never been trendy to be holy, but even more so now, it is no longer in vogue to be holy. And Paul recognizes that ultimately, like we are saying last week, when Satan targets us, when Satan attacks us, he's not aiming for you to just go to sleep without your request being met. He's aiming ultimately for your holiness. He's aiming ultimately for your joy in Christ. He's aiming for you to sort of, as he was saying to Job, if you know the story, he will curse God and flip. That's what the devil is aiming for ultimately. And Paul recognizes that and Paul is saying, oh God, preserve these people. Let them be blameless in holiness before you when you come. In other words, keep them to the end. Don't just keep them right now. Don't just sort of preserve them right now. Oh God, keep them to the very end. In blamelessness and holiness. Friends, if you've never prayed that God should preserve your faith, please begin to pray it. Don't let anyone sort of deceive you that, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian and everything is sort of complete. Oh, I preach in church and sort of, I'm sort of fine. Pray that God will preserve our faithfulness. When you see your pastors or pastors that you look up to, you see Pastor Femi or you see some other people outside of this church and you, you say, wow, thank God for them. They sort of have everything figured out. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, oh God, please preserve them. You never actually make it to the end until you get to the end. Paul doesn't say, oh, yeah, they've been working with Christ for a couple of years now. Everything is sort of automated now. Everything is fine. No, Paul prays, God, preserve them. Keep them blameless and holy. But what is holiness? What is holiness? Sometimes we think that holiness is... Going for a party where the Ashoebi is lace and everybody is meant to wear Iran Buba. 
Well, then you take that same material and you make your own a gown. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is not trying to be sort of like other people, but not really like them. Holiness is not sort of like we're in with you guys, we sort of rap and all of that, we're cool. But, you know, I can't really go that far, you know, because I'm a Christian. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is when everybody around you is wearing Agbada and Iro and Buba, and you come with an Indian sari or Japanese kimono. That is holiness. Holiness is being strange to the world. Holiness is being unique to Christ. Holiness is being so different that it is not just that you have sewn a different style of the same material, but rather you are both wearing a different style and also a different material. And so that when you are wearing something that looks like other people, because you are distinctly separate from them, you are not still like them. That's what holiness is. Holiness is being so consecrated to, the world, to God that we are strange to the world. I'm not talking about strangeness that comes from your being nasty. Or a strangeness that comes at, as, as it was a certain generation in the past where you don't wear good things, where you, you are always sweaty and smelly. No, that's not what holiness is. Holiness is being separate, being dedicated to Christ, such that everyone looks around you and says, yes, he's generous. Other people are generous. He's kind. Other people are kind. He's, he's sort of funny and lively. And I know a couple of other people that are like that, but he's still different. That's what holiness is. And Paul is saying, God, preserve these people. Keep them till the very end. He's praying for opportunities for faithfulness. And I just feel moved by the Spirit of God to say this, that when we talk about praying for opportunities for growth, for service, for faithfulness, it means that God will put us, as you well know, friends, in strange spots and strange places and strange circumstances where things will always be convenient for us. Where sometimes the choice is really between your livelihood and blending with the crowd. And Paul knows that it's not easy. And so Paul prays. He says, resolve to pray. Oh, how do I pray? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to pray frequently, fervently, and fraternally. But this is also what you must pray. You must pray for opportunities for growth, opportunities for service, but also opportunities for faithfulness. Friends, when we resolve to pray, we are basically saying, God, take this soil of my testing and make it the soil of fruitfulness rather than the soil of destruction. Let it be that from this ground where there is so much hardship, let there be blooming, let there be thriving, let there be not just survival, oh God, but fruitfulness. And I pray that God will do that in our lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Must resolve to be thankful. Must resolve to be prayerful. But lastly, we must resolve to be needy. Can we say that together? Resolve to be needy. Resolve to be needy. In verse 13, Paul says, We pray that he may strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. 
In other words, be in the kind of situation where you are always needing strength. My friend, Olaiton, is a great man. He's so great a man that he doesn't go to the gym like the rest of us, mere mortals. Because if you look at him, you know why. He doesn't need to. If he goes too much, he's going to become an Oshot nigger. So he's just fine the way he is. But the rest of us mere mortals, we know that we can't carry what Olaiton can carry. So we need to go to the gym. It is our acknowledgement of our neediness that drives us to the gym. And Paul is saying, you have to be like that. You want God to make you thrive in your circumstance. Don't think that you sort of come to the end of the rope. Don't think that you sort of can now figure everything out by yourself. Don't think that you are now wise by your own standards. Be needy. Ask him to strengthen your hearts. Because I tell you, friends, when life storms come, we need strength. And I'm afraid that sometimes the reason why we don't receive strength is because we don't think that we need strength. We live in a city where it is common to be strong. How many times have you gone for work-life balance seminars? And then they ask you, how do you balance? Or how do you juggle everything together? You say, well, I just, you know, I just, just have to be strong. You just have to be smart. You have to be a can-do person. You have to be a can-do man. You have to be a can-do lady. You just have to be strong. But Paul says, actually, no. The way of being a Christian is being needy. That we don't say, no, we are strong. Rather, we say we are weak because it's only weak people that actually receive strength. And so we find here Paul praying. But you know what's interesting is that when we think about the life of the Lord Jesus, it is the same thing that we see in his life. Jesus was God. Jesus literally could do everything that he needed to do. Jesus didn't need anyone's help. If there was ever any person that says that should have said, okay, I've got this, it is Jesus. And yet all through his life, we see Jesus demonstrating this kind of weakness. We see Jesus being the kind of person who needed to sleep and rest. We see Jesus as he's walking all through his life. He goes to the cross and he's there in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, oh God, will you save me from this? The one time, the one time God didn't answer Jesus' prayer request, it was this time. Jesus is there being needy. Jesus is there needing to be strengthened. Jesus is there needing to be delivered. And he's there crying to God. And Jesus from there goes to the cross. And sometimes we just think, oh, it was a resolve of will that led Jesus to the cross. He sort of just strengthened his resolve and he went to die. But no, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 to 14, we are told that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't cover and atone for all of our sacrifices, but the blood of Jesus can. In verse 14, it says, how do we know this? It says, Jesus offered up his own blood by the eternal spirits. Jesus needed to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to die. And when he ascended to heaven, he promised, 
in Acts chapter 1, verse 5 and 8. He says, this same thing can happen to all those who believe in him. Those who acknowledge their weakness, those who acknowledge their neediness, those who acknowledge their dependence can receive this strength. How do we know? He says, wait until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit from on high. Oh, friends, why don't we experience the power of God in our circumstances? It is because often we don't wait upon his Spirit. It is because we don't realize our neediness, our brokenness, our powerlessness in and of ourselves. Oh, I've been thankful. Oh, I've been prayerful. And yet, I don't see this thing growing in my life. It is because you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in Acts chapter 2. It explodes. The church begins to grow. They have strength. Suddenly, Peter, a man who had denied Jesus Christ, becomes the kind of person who can now go out and speak the word of God boldly. Why? He had received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, they have experienced so much suffering, so much hardship, so much opposition. And what did they do? They gathered together and they resolved to pray. They pray. But as they are praying, they are asking God, give us your Holy Spirit again. Empower, strengthen us with your Holy Spirit. And what happens? We are told in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 31, that the Holy Spirit fills them again and they go out with boldness to proclaim the gospel. Friends, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit not just serve as a crutch to lean on, but as the one that actually carries us, the elevator that leads us up through life storms. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish all that God has destined for us, even when our circumstances haven't changed. I talked about my son, Jesse Dimimu. One of the things that we, we love doing together is solving puzzles. Solving puzzles. Actually, the truth is I sort of enjoy it more than he does, okay? Um, so, but people often give us puzzles for him, they think, but actually it's for me. And so he would often get to points where as he's grown older, he's trying to arrange this stuff by himself, but he's confused sometimes. He doesn't know what to do. And the more he persists in his self-determination to do it by himself, even though he doesn't know what to do, the more he messes up the puzzle. But sometimes he, he says, Daddy, can you help me? Daddy, can you help me? Sometimes I sort of take it over from him. Other times I don't take it over from him. Sometimes I just tell him, this is what you do, this is what you do. And through me, somehow, this boy who didn't know how to be able to arrange his puzzles before is now able to put the pieces together. Why? Because he was needy. It is the same thing, friends, with the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. That when we tap into the power of the limitless God, God is able to help us arrange the puzzles of our lives, but also to cause us to thrive. Oh, friends, the power of the Holy Spirit that we express in our lives is just as dependent upon his acknowledgement in our lives that we, that we acknowledge. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos <laughs>